It's Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, or as I call myself, Temperate Mike. If you were looking for hot Mike, Joe Biden found it. Yesterday, after Peter Ducey of Fox News shouted a question as he was leaving a press avail, a question about inflation being a liability in the midterms, Biden was caught mumbling this into a hot mic. What the hell did Rachel kill them all? Of course. No, wait, wait, that was Robert Durst from the HBO documentary, The Jinx. Mike, what do you think? Every septuagenarian mumbles the same? Are you into croaky old guy ASMR? You know, assorted seniors, mumbled recordings? No, no, I'm not. And it is a niche market, I do admit. Here, in fact, is what Joe Biden said. More inflation. What a stupid son of a Wait a minute. If it was an off-the-cuff remark, how do you know to beep it? And did he really say son of a bitch? We couldn't hear it there. Maybe he said son of a Steve. A certain fox and friend. That is true. Here's my analysis. Here's why you come to the gist. To trade on this insight only for insiders. This hot mic gaffe. Ready? This was good for everyone involved. Peter Ducey, profile raised. Joe Biden, shows sensible peak. Flashed his Irish. Rebuts the idea that he only says what he's told to say. Fox News gets a lot of content out of this. Twitter pushes something of an emotional valence less than the typical accusations of eugenics or genocide. It's good. We all win. It's not even nothing burger. It's a nothing impossible burger. This is the nature of our disputes. Maybe. I hope so. I, I hear that Biden called Ducey and said, sorry, pal, reported to have actually said the word pal. That's good. Maybe democracy isn't in peril. No, it's not that easy. One bit of whispered aggression followed by an apology doesn't restore much. Yesterday, I spoke with Stephen Marsh, who said we are on the precipice of a civil war. Researcher Barbara Walter says so. All the news shows are discussing it, and I am not dismissing it. I will, in fact, be interviewing a Dartmouth professor on the bright lines our democracy may be transgressing. And in the spiel, I will talk about an argument being made in defense of the former Minneapolis police officers on trial for their roles in the murder of George Floyd. But first, Dartmouth's Brendan Nyhan has been studying just how much our democracy is imperiled. Can the answer be a little imperiled? Maybe, should we say at that point, it's imhampered or imnuisanced? Anyway, we shall properly affix the threat level up next. Brendan Nyhan, professor of government at Dartmouth, is the co-founder of the Bright Line Watch, a project that assesses the state of American democracy. Now, you don't start a project like Bright Line Watch if your take on American democracy is, oh, it's fine, move along. But having read the reports and heard their professor's analysis, I'm actually more optimistic than I was going in, which was, to be fair, kind of optimistic. I wouldn't say optimistic, but not overly pessimistic. I kind of look at democracy like the New York Jets. Are they a good, healthy football team? No. But are they going to stop being a football team anytime soon? Also, no. If that example did not resonate with you, you could change it to your struggling team of choice or the careers of, say, Nick Cage or M. Night Shyamalan. I know Brendan Nyhan didn't ask for any of those examples, but I welcome him. Thanks for coming on, Brendan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So 
you and your fellow professors do a series of reports which largely depend on, and we could get into some of the other things you do, polling the public and polling experts and seeing what they have to say. Now, is there, is the value in each somewhat different? Is it the case, because I sense it's not, it's not just that experts know more than the public, it's that the public is telling us something and the experts are analyzing something. Yeah, that's right. We wanted to learn two slightly different things. Democracy is a hard concept to define, so we're not sure asking the public um, to define democracy is the best approach, but we do care what they think about democracy and how worried they are about it. So we, it, it seemed important to pull them, but we also wanted to pull experts who we thought could make the most informed judgments about the state of American democracy. And importantly, when those diverge, that tells us something important. So, you know, as, as your listeners would expect, we often see the public diverging um, by party or how they feel about Donald Trump in their assessments of U.S. democracy. And that often blunts the kind of universal condemnation we might see among experts for certain kinds of violations of the standards of behavior we expect for leaders in a democracy. Might the opinions of each group, though, result in sort of a mutually reinforcing doom cycle? The public's pessimistic. The experts say, you know, one part of my analysis is what the public thinks of democracy. They're pessimistic. The public maybe doesn't read the experts explicitly, but, you know, it filters down to them that smart people are also worried about this. And we just get more and more and more worried where the background conditions didn't really change. I think it's fair to worry about that kind of cycle because democracy depends on everyone maintaining a commitment to play by the rules of the game, right? We're all agreeing that we're going to respect these rules and they're going to govern our behavior. When we lose elections, we're going to turn power over to the other side. Uh, you know, it's important to continually maintain that equilibrium, to keep reminding people that we all share this commitment to democratic standards and principles. The challenge has been, you know, there are real threats and concerns and people do become very alarmed about them. I think it's fair to say that experts are quite alarmed. The sky hasn't fallen. And, you know, your intro suggested, you know, there are reasons for doom and gloom, but there are also things that haven't gone as poorly as we might have feared. But that doesn't mean we should be sanguine either. And I think striking that balance has been really hard for people. Yeah. That most predicted catastrophes don't come to pass. It doesn't mean that you don't buy flood insurance or, you know, try to try to lower global temperatures by 1.5 Celsius. But I will let's just talk about, I think, the thing that made me most optimistic. And it's generally reported that there is shockingly high support for the acceptability of political violence. But you and your group looked at how we came to those statistics and you found some flaws. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, this is a, a line of research that had uh, really worried us, uh, especially in the aftermath of January 6th. Um, some polling suggested that support for political violence might be as high as 30 or 40 percent of the public. That's highly alarming, right? Anyone would be worried when they hear a statistic like that. And we had done polling like that found uh, similar numbers using standard questions that had been um, used in previous research. But we, we re-examined those findings um, based on a critique offered by some other political scientists um, where we um, took out the people in this poll who weren't paying very close attention uh, and we changed the question wording to make sure it was clear what respondents were really endorsing. And when we did that, we found that the percentage of Americans who will explicitly endorse physical violence is 
low to mid single digits typically. So it's not something that um, a broad swath of Americans will endorse. Now, as we saw on January 6th, it doesn't take too many people engaging in violence to have some very serious consequences. So I don't want to minimize that at all. But it's not the case that everyone is willing to accept violence when you put it in those terms. So I think that's at least something we can build on as we try to um, rebuild a consensus that what happened on January 6th was wrong, um, which unfortunately, despite those polls, has been surprisingly difficult. What was the original either wording of the question or way it was proposed that got us to uh, 30%? Well, there were a couple of ways that the question was designed that that could have inflated the proportion of people who seemed to endorse violence. Um, The first one was uh, we were uh, capturing the percentage of people who didn't pick the lowest option on a scale that had multiple responses you could give. Um, And it turned out um, that people, especially those who weren't paying close attention, would sometimes answer randomly or pick the middle option. So having a a binary choice first, we said, um, is this ever acceptable? Yes or no? And if they said yes, then we said how often? So pushing them on that simple binary question first. And second, defining what we meant by violence. That's a term um, that makes people think of physical violence, like assault, murder, et cetera. Um, But some people seem to be thinking of um, property destruction or trespassing or other kinds of things that we wouldn't necessarily describe as violence. So we asked a series of questions that precisely defined what it is we had in mind, Uh, a nonviolent misdemeanor, uh, a nonviolent felony, a violent felony, um, and so forth. And when that more specific terminology was combined with the um, response options that uh, reduced the kind of people who are answering randomly, then we get down to those numbers we think are more accurate. So here's what I'm taking away. It is true. It's it's not a good thing that a significant f- faction in America doesn't accept the election results. Of course, it's not a good thing. But I think what you're laying out here is we should regard that not as just regrettable or I wish it weren't true. No, we should necessarily say that actually imperils the entire idea of government. Um, I Maybe that's true. You know, I just wouldn't, if you had asked me 20 years ago in the abstract, would a significant faction of people not believing, does that mean democracy is imperiled? I'd say, I don't know, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe like that's so serious. Of course it means that. Yeah, no, it's it. What I would say is it highlights a vulnerability. The reason our group is called Brightline Watch is because um, there's an idea in, in research in this area that it's ultimately up to the public to punish politicians who violate democratic norms and to remove them from office if they go too far. And people aren't willing to punish partisans on their side very often for violating democratic norms. These polls highlight that, right? Mm. Donald Trump hasn't been punished for attempting to overturn an election. He's cemented his hold on the Republican Party. Republican voters aren't accepting Joe Biden's legitimacy. They're continuing to believe that he wasn't the rightful winner of the of the 2020 election. Now, does this mean Donald Trump will necessarily overturn the 2024 election? No. Um, but it's it's a vulnerability. Like, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, as much as I, 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 I want to be sympathetic to your Jets uh, <laughs> metaphor, let me offer an alternative yeah. one. Um, imagine you were at an airport and they said, well, the mechanic doesn't pay very close attention. Most of the time it's fine right? You wouldn't be super comfortable getting on that plane. Now, most of the time you got on that plane, things would be fine, right? But that poor quality maintenance that that mechanic had been doing leaves you vulnerable to more catastrophic outcomes. 
here is how your plane metaphor helps. It doesn't, I don't think it's a great metaphor, but it, it actually clarified something with me because a plane doesn't fly based on the collective faith of the passengers, right? Tinkerbell works like that, not an actual airplane. So if people believed or didn't believe, you know, the people got on were worried or not worried, the plane was either going to fly or crash. But democracies actually don't work like that, right? Democracy is just based on the collective buy-in of everyone involved. And yeah, I used to probably think about it like democracy, our democracy is big and possibly permanent and has all these uh, very complex gears and levers that won't be undone by one demagogue or even the people who follow him unless it gets to a level of the majority. I think I thought of democracy like a machine and it's really more an idea. Yeah, you know, and let me let me just let me you know we're we're too deep in the metaphor weeds here, but I'll I'll, I'll try I'll try <laughs> one more time, and you can cut it if you like. The plane crash is a little bit too final and dramatic and binary, right? The plane crashes or it doesn't. The way political mm-hmm. scientists think about democracy is more of a continuum. Um, democracy can erode in important ways that are relatively subtle. Uh, again, it's not the fear people have shouldn't be tanks in the streets. It's what happened in Poland and Hungary and. Russia and places like that, where even though elections are held, they've become less free and fair over time. It's become more difficult to limit the powers of those who hold office. And in all these other respects, the kinds of constraints on power and popular accountability that we expect in a democracy have been eroded. Yeah. So the plane crashed to binary. So what you're saying is we thought we were on the Concorde. It turns out we're on Spirit Airlines. (laughs) I want to ask you about Something you said, which is that one of the bright lines is that the the actors in a democracy, the actual uh, politicians, the actual voters, want to play by the rules of the game. But you also have findings that constitutional hardball politics, and some of them you mentioned are gerrymandering, packing the Supreme Court, blocking court nominees, voter suppression, abolishing the filibuster, adding new states to the union. They enjoy little support among the public and with few exceptions among experts. But if the problem is playing by rules of the game and we want people to play by rules of the game, some of those things are the rules of the game. Gerrymandering is the rule of the game and blocking a Supreme Court nominee is the rule of the game. And some of those things are fixes. I mean, we all might not agree or one side might agree that or another side thinks that it's not a fix. But, you know, something like packing the Supreme Court is proposed by some as a fix to the failures of our democracy. So does this get at the fact? I read that and I said, okay, Americans think and experts think we're in a really bad position. They just don't want to do anything radical about it. Yeah, this is a this is a tricky issue. Um, so, uh, so your first point, right, these are part of the rules of the game is absolutely correct. But what, one thing we've learned um, in recent years is that Um, Democracy depends on soft norms in which people in power don't stretch the rules to their absolute limit, even when they could technically under the rules. And if everyone engages in maximalist hardball tactics, it can be very destabilizing. Experts worry about those kinds of tactics setting off a kind of spiral of violations, right? So you see this debate happening right now among Democrats who've condemned um, the most extreme forms of gerrymandering, which have been more common in Republican states, um, and some saying we should get rid of gerrymandering and others saying we can't unilaterally disarm. We have to gerrymander our own states in order to counter um, that trend. 
So I, I think experts and many of the public are squeamish about these kinds of tactics. Now, you're right, though, that some say hardball tactics are necessary to promote small d democratic values. And they make an argument that it's necessary to respond to norm violations with hardball tactics that will correct or offset the damage. But it's a difficult right. dilemma. Um, it's a difficult dilemma because on the one hand, you may be promoting democratic values. On the other hand, you risk setting off this kind of spiral of competing hardball moves that could be very destabilizing. I don't think there's an easy answer. Mm. And finally, have you and the other directors of Brightline Watch, have you considered a construct like the doomsday clock that the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists have? I always, it's, it's always like at one or two minutes to midnight. I was going to go with the uh, color code scale from back in the uh, uh, Homeland Security days, but let's go with a variation of DEFCON. We'll call it DEMOSCON. If five is we're at total, where where some pick your uh, Scandinavian ideal, your Madisonian uh, ideal, New Zealand, some extremely functioning democracy, and one is Erdogan, you know, maybe Orban's there. I, I didn't want to. I didn't. I didn't want to go Nazi. I don't want to go Hitler. So one is Erdogan. Where are we between five and one? Demos Khan. You're gonna get me in trouble with my political science colleagues on this one. But where does your gut say? Give me a range. Give me like a confidence interval. We're, so let me put it this way. Experts right now are rating the U.S. as slipping uh, and mm -hmm. potentially there are warning signs of leaving the ranks of stable democracies. So maybe we're um, at a 3.5. Um, we're moving away from the stable advanced democracies and towards the kinds of countries that have suffered significant democratic erosion. What were we at 10 years ago? Four point. Five, you know, the U.S. generally was rated as uh, a well-functioning democracy. Hardly perfect, hardly perfect. Right. But in the post-civil rights era, um, the U.S. U.S. democracy has rated pretty highly. Um, you know, again, much to work on, much to be done. Not a perfect country, but by international standards, in the post-civil rights era, um, we were considered a full democracy, um, and that's at least in question now in a way that. Um, that none of us could have anticipated. Brendan Nyhan is professor of government at Dartmouth College. He is one of the co-directors of Bright Line Watch, and he rates uh, on the Nikon scale a five for us, which is the best. Thank you, Brendan. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Testimony began today in the federal trial of three Minneapolis police officers who were working the scene of George Floyd's murder. The reason we can say murder and not merely death is the conviction on that charge of Derek Chauvin, the officer who restrained and leaned on Floyd for 9 minutes, 29 seconds. Two of the officers are charged with failing to intervene, and all are charged with failing to give aid. It's a different case than Chauvin's, a harder case, and a less paid attention to case for a couple of reasons. One is that the actual murderer has been convicted. Another is that there are no cameras in federal court. A third is that legal experts say this case will rest on issues of training and chain of command. J. Alexander King was on just his third shift as an officer, Thomas Lane, on just his fourth day on the job. But there's an argument being advanced by the men's lawyers that was also put forward by Eric Nelson, Derek Chauvin's lawyer. And this is not a critique of defense lawyers doing what they need to do for their clients to try any legal argument they can to convince a jury. This is a note on the implications of one of those lines of reasoning. 
We heard it today from Thomas Plunkett, King's attorney, who told the court in opening statements that his client should be found not guilty for reasons of training, but also for the fact that he was dealing with a confrontational crowd. I want to home in on this argument because it was raised extensively during the earlier trial, and I don't think analysts were quite aware of the precedent, not de jure, but de facto, but the precedent it would set were it to allow Chauvin to escape justice. You will see in here that a crowd begins to develop watching and recording officers. That was defense attorney Eric Nelson in his opening statement back in March of last year. As the crowd grew in size, seemingly so too did their anger. This collective anger at what the crowd perceived to be excessive force correctly, that was putting a man in grave danger, was referred to again and again by Nelson at trial. And it was referred to as exculpatory. So here's Nelson during his cross-examine of the chief of the Minneapolis Police Department, Madaria Arredondo. Uh, Would you say that people who observe police interactions with people, especially the more physical or use of force types, that's a, that could turn into a crisis for an observer. The chief was a bit confused. A crisis for the observer? Nelson continued throwing out the suggestion that an upset crowd necessarily equaled an escalating situation. Because ultimately, part of the training that Minneapolis police officers have to go through is how to deal with crowds who observe police interactions, right? Yes. Right? Crowds that may be upset with police interaction, right? Yes. Now, there was no eureka moment contained in that particular line of questioning. That's not what really happens in trials. But implications are made, seeds are sown. But in his closing, it became clear what Nelson was after. The implication was that an angry crowd could be a factor, which might cause the police to legitimately double down on their techniques. Were you angry? Nelson asked specific observers who testified. Indeed, they were. They were horrified as well. To another member of the crowd, Genevieve Hansen, an off-duty firefighter, Nelson drew an analogy between the behavior of the crowd that day and what a crowd might act like during a fire. Have you ever had a citizen start to yell at you while you're fighting a fire? No. Do you think it would make your job fighting the fire harder if someone started yelling at you and telling you that you were doing it wrong? I'm very confident in the training that I've been given, so um, I I would not be concerned about somebody that was not trained to the extent I have been, and right. I would continue to fight the fire the way I would. Right. But do you think it would be distracting? No. She wasn't having it, and neither was the jury, which is a good thing. The crowd was upset, Nelson was arguing, and that was a contributing factor to the officer's distraction, or, Nelson even said, for the officer's decision to press on in their particularly brutal way. As if officers would be fair to think, angry crowd, better not let this guy up. Emotionally, as I watched that trial and that testimony, I felt like screaming. Yeah, they were upset because a man was being killed in front of them. But intellectually, I thought about this argument, the exact same argument that's being used in the current trial, and I was even more disturbed. If that argument won the day or was part of a line of arguing that was successful, it would be a terrible development for future attempts at police accountability. It would say whenever citizens encounter such a heinous act, they can't be upset by it, lest that give the cops cover to continue on in their actions. So look, obviously, justice for Derek Chauvin is correct, 
because he clearly broke the law, not guilty verdict on all or any of the charges he faced would have meant that the party responsible for a man's death would have escaped justice. But during the trial, most of the criticisms of the defense were all about, can you believe he asserted Chauvin's tactics were justified? Can you believe Nelson said cops are trained to do what they do? Yes, of course, that's what he said. (laughs) That's the direct way you have to defend a cop in Chauvin's situation. But what escaped notice, what escaped opprobrium, was the fact that Nelson was trying to use the outrage of the crowd and the filming of the police as a significant piece of his defense. And I wasn't mad at the defense for trying it. I was just worried that it could have worked. If the courts had delivered the message that caring, feeling citizens should shut up or look away or not speak up, that would have been its own injustice. And then we'd have not only failed to hold Chauvin accountable, but we'd be undoing a mechanism by which future accountability could take hold. And that's it for today's show. And you know who I forgot to thank yesterday? You. You. Andrew, my lawyer. I know it's kind of inefficient to mention one person specifically to an audience of tens of thousands, but this way I might not get billed. No, I I mean you. You, the listeners. Not just for coming back as you have. Last I looked, we were in the top 20 of Apple News podcasts for being there. Hundreds, thousands of you literally being there while I was gone. That is the reason I knew I had to get back and to keep this show going. And how do I keep it going? Well, thanks to GIST producer, the one and only Joel Patterson. He is literally the one producer, kind of crazy. Michelle Hunter-Pesca is the chief web envisioner. Go to MikePesca.com to see the work. The show is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.